Please turn your attention to Genesis chapter 40. In our journey through the life of Joseph, we come this morning to the 40th chapter of Genesis, and we're going to consider all 23 verses. So let me read this chapter for us, and then we're going to spend some time thinking about it together. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into the Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had, been, had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you meet us in your word and speak to us by your spirit. We pray that you would do that this morning, in this time that we have. We ask that you would speak a word to us, and we pray that you would give us open ears and open hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Waiting is a regular part of life. We wait in line for gas at Costco. We wait for things that we have ordered. We wait for the delivery of them. And, of course, Amazon has shortened that wait considerably. We wait at the doctor's office. We wait at long red lights. We wait for a new song to drop. 
We wait for the weekend to come. We wait for the Knicks to be good. <laughs> of course, there are times when waiting is excruciatingly difficult. In 2010, when 33 Chilean miners were trapped 2,300 feet underground and had to wait 69 days to be rescued. That's hard to wait. Cannot imagine that. When we are late for a very important appointment and we get stuck in standstill traffic, that's hard waiting. Our heart races. We, we begin to feel our anxiety and frustration start to, to boil over as we're sitting in standstill traffic and, and uh, we start to count the minutes. We're waiting for test results that determine whether the tumor is malignant or benign. It's terrible waiting. We have all experienced, I think, situations where it's been very difficult to wait. Genesis 40 is one of those times. Joseph is stuck in a very difficult situation in which he must wait. Genesis 40 begins sometime later as an indicator that significant time has elapsed in Joseph's life. He has been, if you tally it up, he's been in slavery or in prison for over 10 years. And his reflection on this is in verse 15. He says, I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. And this word dungeon is the same word back in Genesis 37 for the pit that Joseph's brothers threw him in. In other words, Joseph has been at the bottom of a pit for over 10 years. And things happen in this chapter to give Joseph a glimmer of hope that he will be rescued from the pit, that the dungeon door will be opened and that he will be released. But as quickly as the hopes are raised, they are dashed. Because the chief cupbearer, which you just heard, Joseph's ticket to freedom, forgets about Joseph. And so Joseph ends up right back where he started, at the bottom of the pit, trapped in the dungeon. It's as hopeless as when he was first thrown into prison by Potiphar. Maybe even more hopeless because hopes have been raised and then they're dashed. It's kind of like a long-distance race where you're running and you see the finish line and you're, you're, you're pulling for the finish line and then suddenly you reach the finish line and then you're told there's two more miles to go. That might be the, the, the most physically, psychologically exhausting two miles you've ever run in that situation. I wonder if there's anyone this morning who is in that kind of waiting time, that difficult time of waiting. You might be waiting for a spouse. Or with your spouse, you might be waiting to conceive a baby. Or you're waiting for a job offer. Or you're waiting to be rescued from prison-like circumstances. God, how long, oh Lord? We're waiting for new staff members. Genesis 40 tells us that God sometimes makes us wait. Genesis 40 tells us that in the story that God is writing in our lives, there are some chapters of which the title is Wait. God is providentially in control of Joseph's life at every point, and yet he's forgotten, and he has to wait in prison for two more years. Abraham and Sarah must wait 25 years for the baby promised by God. Again, the psalmist repeatedly cries out, How long, O Lord? There are times that God makes us wait. 
This morning, what I'd like to consider together is what we should do when God makes us wait. What should we do when God makes us wait? And I would consider this morning Joseph as a model, because I think there are three commendable things that Joseph does as God makes him wait. Joseph serves, Joseph believes, and Joseph hopes. I'd like to look at those three things. First, Joseph serves. In, at the beginning of Genesis 40, the cupbearer and baker were told, offend Pharaoh. We're not told what they do, but they do something offensive to Pharaoh so that he throws them into the prison where Joseph is confined. Both were important uh, men. Uh, kings feared poisoning. And so the cupbearer had to be a very uh, trustworthy person. He had ultimate access to the king. And so oftentimes, cupbearers were wealthy, powerful, and influential people. Same with the baker. He had to be trusted as someone who prepared the king's food. And both these men were thrown into prison. And, and both were assigned to Joseph's care. And we read what happens. Verse 6, Joseph, when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? Now, you might gloss over this as a detail of the story, but I want to pause here and suggest that there's some significance here. See, Joseph sees these two men as dejected, which means that, that he had to know them enough to recognize this. It registers with him socially. These two men are, are sad. And he, then he acts on what he sees, and he expresses care. He says, why do you look so sad? And the implication is, is there anything I can do to help? And here's why I think that's significant. Because oftentimes when we're going through a time of prolonged suffering, one of the temptations is to become self-absorbed. See, it's, it's so subtle, we don't even realize that this is happening. But, but in suffering, something can happen very subtly where everything becomes about us. Everything's centered on us. Every conversation that we have is about us. We take center stage. You see, suffering can turn us in on ourselves. We can become self-absorbed to the point that, that we're, we stop caring about others. See, and in this sense, Joseph could have been justified in being concerned about his own life because he had a lot of concerns. He was in prison. He was in prison for a long time. He had a lot of personal needs and, and things to be concerned about. And yet, he sees the troubles of those around him, and he extends care to them. I think it's also significant that it's Joseph who does this, who extends this kind of care, because 10 years earlier, when we first met Joseph, he was a self-centered, bratty, boastful younger brother. Remember? who got in trouble for telling his own brothers that they were going to bow down to him one day. But now 10 years we see him in prison, seeking to serve those around him. What happened? 10 years of suffering transformed him. See, as they say, suffering will either make you bitter or it'll make you better, but it won't leave you the same person. See, suffering is a tremendous time to learn patience because there's something suddenly you had to be patient through. Suffering is a great time to learn compassion because you learn to understand what it means to suffer. Suffering is a great time to learn humility because suffering knocks off the hard edges of pride and ego. And apparently Joseph is made better by his suffering 
This self-centered, boastful teen becomes an others-centered, serving 20-something. What make, what, when God makes Joseph wait, he seeks to serve those around him. I wonder if you know anyone like this. I think of my pastor in high school. He was not just the, he was not the youth pastor. He was a pastor of the whole congregation. But well, uh, for a year in, when I was in high school, he came over to my house to disciple me and my brother every day. He, every Wednesday afternoon, he would come over and sit with us and disciple us. And, and now that I know the busy life of a pastor on that side, I'm amazed that he made time to do that every week. When I left for college, every time I'd come home on break, he'd find out, he'd call me up and say, hey, Dan, can, we have, can I take you out to breakfast? And he would ask me, how are you doing? Sadly, he died of liver cancer in his 40s. He left behind a wife and three young kids. The last time I saw him, he was jaundiced from a surgical procedure. He was weak. But the first thing he said is, Dan, how are you? I want to hear how you're doing. It's my last memory of him is his concern for me. When God makes us wait, we can serve those around us instead of giving in to self-absorption. See, how often do we wait until our lives are together before we try and help others? How often do we take care of our needs, own needs first and try and get them all squared away before we seek to help the needs of others? How often do we wait until we're no longer in transition? And that's never in the Northeast. Before we wait to serve. When God makes us wait, even when our own lives are uncertain, we can still seek to serve others around us. And my friends, the silver lining of this, Joseph doesn't know this, but those he serves end up being the the very means by which he gets out of prison. First thing Joseph does when God makes him wait is he serves. Second, Joseph believes. The reason why the cupbearer and baker are sad in verse 8 are they have dreams that trouble them, and they have no one to interpret their dreams. Now, here's what you have to understand culturally. Dreams played a significant role in ancient Egypt. There, There was a belief that was widespread in antiquity that sleep pushed you in contact with another world. Sleep put you in contact with a a world where the gods dwelled. So dreams were seen as communication from that world. Dreams had meaning and were predictive. And so what what built up in Egypt is this this, uh, big culture, this big industry of specialists who interpreted dreams. Dreams in those days were signals of transcendence. And I know in the West we may not put much stock in dreams, but I think we still experience signals of transcendence. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, observes that we live in a secular age. No surprise to any of us. What that means is that the heavens have been closed off. We're trying to do our best to get rid of God and religion and every trace of them. We're only focused on the here and now. Charles Taylor says that we live in a secular age, but he says we live in a haunted secular age. That is to say, every once in a while, we encounter signals of transcendence. We get this sense deep down that there is something more than this world. One example is Julian Barnes, an English writer, who is an atheist turned agnostic. He wrote a book entitled Nothing to be Frightened of, which he wrote at age 62, as a memoir and meditation on the fear of death. It's interesting. 
first line of the book is a pr- very provocative line, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. In the book, he wonders why an agnostic should fear death. He says, if, if he has no faith in an afterlife, why should he fear death? How can you be frightened of nothing? And yet he says he, the fear of death is a fact of his life. He thinks about death daily, and sometimes at night he says he's roared awake and pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world. I think the fear of death is a signal of transcendence. Barnes is not religious, but he also experiences signals of transcendence in religious art, which he loves. Mozart's Requiem, the sculptures of Donatello. He says, I miss the God that inspired Italian painting and French stained glass. German music in English chapter houses, and those tumble-down heaps of stone on Celtic headlands on which once symbolic beacons in the darkness and the storm. Julian Barnes recognizes that Western civilization is filled with God-inspired art, signals of transcendence. I think many people, for many people, natural beauty is a signal of transcendence. See, there are these moments where, uh, when we're on the beach alone at sunrise, when we're out in the back country and we look up at night and see the expanse of stars, when we're hiking and we, see, we come to a scenic overlook and the mountain range stretches before us. We're overtaken by beauty, aren't we? And aren't there moments where you say to yourself, there has to be something more? Beauty is a signal, I think, of transcendence, a whisper from God. The cupper and baker receive a signal of transcendence breaking into their world through these dreams. And they are troubled because they have no access to dream interpretation specialists. And they tell this to Joseph. And look at how Joseph responds. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. He doesn't say, do not interpretations belong to the gods. He says, do not interpretations belong to God, the biblical God. In this polytheistic pagan culture, Joseph does not hesitate to bring up God. He does not hesitate to express his personal belief in God. It's his first thought, his reflexive action. See, when he says, do not interpretations belong to God, Joseph is declaring the God of the Bible's superiority over all the dream specialists over all the Egyptian wise men, even over the Pharaoh himself, over all the Egyptian gods. It's what the Apostle Paul does in Athens. You know, he's walking around that great ancient city of Athens, filled with great architecture, sophisticated culture, learned philosophy, the ancient equivalent to New York City. And Paul takes a walk around the city, and then he's speaking to the Areopagus, a group of the leading philosophers and people of influence in the city. And he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Paul sees signals of transcendence all over Athens. And then he says, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is a Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul's reflex is to proclaim God in the context of a polytheistic pagan city. 
And Joseph essentially does the same in an Egyptian prison. When he says to them, tell me your dreams, he's expressing personal belief and even confidence in God in the midst of his own challenges. I mean, here's Joseph in prison. God has not really answered his prayers. He's, not, he's still in prison. He is experiencing disappointment upon personal disappointment. If anyone had a reason to feel neglected and abandoned by God, it's Joseph. In his shoes, many people would give up on God. Like, if God is not answering my prayers, why would I commend him to someone else who is seeking help? And yet, Joseph here, when he says, tell me your dreams, he is expressing strong personal belief, even confidence in God for the sake of the cupbearer and the baker. When God makes Joseph wait, Joseph continues to believe in God. Hebrews 11 one says that faith is a substance of what we hope for and the evidence of what we do not see. What that's saying is faith and belief is trusting in God's promises even though they haven't become a reality yet. Faith and belief is trusting in God's word even when the circumstances seem hopeless. Here's an illustration of, I think, of that dynamic of faith and belief. One October afternoon in 1982 in Madison, Wisconsin, there were 60,000 University of Wisconsin students that had gathered to cheer on their football team against the Michigan State Spartans. Not too long into the game, it became clear that the Michigan State Spartans were the better team, and they began to run up the score. The very strange thing was that as the defeat on the field was getting worse and worse, some of the Wisconsin students began to cheer and applaud and shout for joy. What in the world? What's, what was going on? Well, 70 miles away in Milwaukee, a more important contest was going on. Game three of the World Series. And some of the Wisconsin students were listening to radios. This was the, the 80s, after all. They were listening to radios in the stands, and when they heard that the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals, they began cheering. You see the situation. They weren't cheering their present circumstances. The present circumstances was a defeat on the field. But they were cheering in the midst of their present circumstances because they had their eyes and ears on something else. Joseph is in the midst of an Egyptian prison. His immediate circumstances are bleak and hopeless. He's surrounded by pagans. And yet his eyes and ears are on something else, someone else. We learned in the last chapter, Joseph was aware of God's presence even in the Egyptian prison. And so his reflexive response, when he hears about trouble or difficulty, he says, we should go to God. God can help. We should go to God. His reflexive response was not, we, I should look inside. I should summon up resources from within myself. That's what our culture tells us right now is to look inside. His re reflexive response was not to work harder. That's a Northeast reflexive response to, to hardship. So I've just got to work harder. Joseph's reflexive response was, we should go to God. God can help. My question to us this morning is, how can this be our reflexive response in hardship and difficulty? I would suggest to you that it comes this way. The more time we spend meditating on God's word and his promises than our circumstances, this can be our, become our reflexive response. 
What does it mean to meditate on God's word and on his promises? It means setting our eyes and ears on God and his word until the truth travels from our head down to our hearts, until his promises get into our bloodstream. Such that when life pricks us, what flows out is God's promises and his being. When God makes us wait, meditate on God and his word, and your reflexive response will be to believe as Joseph does. Joseph serves, he believes, and then thirdly, Joseph hopes. God does help Joseph interpret these dreams. First, the cupbearer's dream. He sees a vine with three branches that bud and blossom, and then the clusters ripen into grapes. And then he sees in the dream that he puts Pharaoh's cup in his hand. He takes the grapes, he squeezes them into the cup, and then he puts the cup in the Pharaoh's hand. And with God's help, Joseph provides the interpretation. He says, the three branches are three days, and in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift your head up and restore you to your position. The baker hesitates initially to tell Joseph his dream, perhaps initially because he really is guilty and he knows it. But when he sees that Joseph gives a favorable interpretation to the cupbearer, he says, well, I had a dream too. And his dream is on his head. He has three baskets of bread, all kinds of baked goods for the Pharaoh, but the birds are eating the bread out of the basket. And with God's help, again, Joseph provides the interpretation. He says the three baskets are three days. Pharaoh is also going to lift up your head, but he's going to impale you on a pole, and the birds are going to eat your flesh. And that happens just as God says through Joseph. The cupbearer is restored, and the baker is put to death. And Joseph, in the midst of all this, in this chapter, expresses his hope to the cupbearer. Again, verse 14, he says to the cupbearer, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Here's Joseph's hope. He hopes that when the cupbearer is restored to his position, he will remember Joseph and advocate for him that he gets out of prison. But of course, what happens is the cupbearer forgets. And the kindness he has received from Joseph, he does not show back to Joseph. And Genesis 40 is evidence that our ultimate hope can't be in people. Because people let us down. People don't always return the favors that we do for them. People sometimes forget. Genesis 40 hints at where we ought to place our hope. Gordon Wenham, a commentator on Genesis says that when Joseph expresses this hope to the cupbearer, he uses language that the Bible usually uh, reserves for God, is usually applied to God. It's God who remembers his people. When Joseph asks for kindness, he uses this Hebrew word hesed, which I learned in seminary way back when, that this is a Hebrew word that is, is too rich to be translated by one English word. It, it encompasses these concepts of loyalty and love, of, of love and action and love and attitude. So it's usually translated by two words, steadfast love, covenantal love, loving kindness. And the consistent source of Hesed love in the Bible is God. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love, the hesed love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Psalm 23, surely goodness and love, hesed love, will follow me all the days of my life. See, this is Joseph's ultimate hope, is that God will remember. 
and that God will show him kindness. And that's what happens. In two years, God raises Joseph up to be second in command only to the Pharaoh. And in fact, Genesis 40, this chapter is a turning point in Joseph's life, though he doesn't see it. In this chapter, we know as, as, as the reader now, seeds are being planted for his redemption, for his rescue from prison. But of course, Joseph will wait, have to wait for those seeds to bloom. My friends, how do we know that God will remember us? How do we know that God will show us his steadfast love when we're waiting at the bottom of the pit? This is the reason. Because we have one greater than Joseph, whose name is Jesus Christ. See, Joseph was thrown into a pit. He was forgotten there. He suffered humiliation because God was raising up in him a savior for his brothers. In the same way, Jesus was not just thrown into a pit. He was cast into the outer darkness on the cross. He was not just forgotten. He was forsaken by his own father on the cross. He was not just humiliated. He suffered the worst humiliation known to mankind on the cross because God was raising up a savior for all his brothers and sisters. God remembers us and shows us kindness for the sake of his son. If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So my friends, if you're at the bottom of the pit and you're saying, will God remember me? Look at Jesus who was forsaken so that you would be remembered by God. If you're waiting in a terrible time and you're wondering, does God love me? Look at Jesus, who was lifted up on a cross so we could be lifted up to God and receive his everlasting covenantal love. And so God makes us wait. Here are some things we can do. Serve those around you. Believe in God's word and his promises more than what your circumstances tell you. And put your hope in God's steadfast love. He knows you, as we sung at the beginning of the service. He knows your name. And he remembers you. Isaiah 64, 4 says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Isaiah 40, verse 30 says, Even youths grow tired and weary. On young men stumble and fall, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. I don't know what that means. What does that mean to soar on wings like eagles? I've always wanted to dunk a basketball, but I think this is better than that. Because eagles have this great wingspan that allows them to ride on the rising air currents that allow them to fly higher than any other bird. And what Isaiah is saying is there is a spiritual experience akin to this. And Joseph experiences it because he waits on God. And we can experience it when we wait on God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize in Genesis 40 that there are 
times when you make us wait. There are chapters in our lives of the story that you're writing that have as its title, Wait. Lord, help us to first accept that. Help us to accept that you sometimes make us wait. And in that waiting, would you do your work? And would we respond to who you are by serving those around us, by continuing to believe in your promises, and hoping that you do remember us and you will show us your steadfast love. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.